Hello, Voyagers. Welcome to the Voyages of Tim Vetter podcast. This is episode number 271. And this episode is with the artist, illustrator, painter, Steve Mumford. I know about Steve because I have a book called Baghdad Journal, An Artist in Occupied Iraq. And I struggled with what to call this episode. I've seen Steve referred to before as a combat artist, so ultimately, that's what I called it. But after talking with him, I don't know. I don't know if that label is correct. To me, what he's depicting through his work is humanity and people and his experiences. It's just that frequently throughout his career, that work has been done in combat zones, in areas of conflict. So Baghdad Journal. This is a big hunk of a book with absolutely gorgeous paintings inside and illustrations and some really wonderful journals about the people that Steve met while he was in Baghdad. Now, he's done a few trips to Iraq. He's been to Afghanistan. I'll let him talk about all the logistics of that. But I found that fascinating. I'm I'm looking through his book. I'm like, how did he gain access? What were his experiences like? There's some really beautiful stuff in here, and there's some really heartbreaking stuff. I mean, as you would probably expect. So he's lived an incredible life, and he's had access that very few of us will ever get. So I was so happy to get to meet him and to pick his brain and to to hear about his experiences. And I'm really happy that I get to share that with all of you. I met Steve in Manhattan in his studio in a building that was a school at one point and is now converted into all these studio spaces and performance spaces. It's awesome. It's a, it's a little world within a world as you know, so many cool spots in New York City are. So go to the show notes for this episode and you'll find a link to see his work. I don't know if Baghdad Journal is still in print. I actually got mine used and fortunately it looks brand new and is really beautiful. Uh, but I got mine on thrift books. So first go to the source, see if you can get it from Steve. If not, go to a local place, a bookstore, or try to buy it used. And if it's still available, but it's not at any of those places, then I guess turn to Amazon. But yeah, you should try to get your hands on this because it's a it's a really, really beautiful piece. I know I've said that a few times, but that's what I'm thinking when I'm looking at it. So yeah, go to the notes and you'll see some more of his work. Otherwise, we're going to go right into it because this is a long one. So enjoy this conversation with Steve Mumford. First of all, thank you so much. This is really a treat for me. Um, thanks for sticking with me too. I, I ended up talking to whoever hacked your uh, your Instagram account oh. a couple times. <laughs> yeah, that's right. And I'm, they're like, "Hey, yeah. can I can I ask you for a favor?" I'm like, "This is strange. I don't think he'd be asking me for a favor." Um, yeah. So so uh, 
I've been really, really looking forward to this, so thank you. Yeah, you're welcome. It's a pleasure. Let's start uh, before we even get to the work that you've done over the last 20 some odd years and uh, get your backstory a bit. Are you from New York originally? No, I'm from Boston. Uh, grew up in Cambridge specifically. And uh, I actually went out to California for school, for, for college that is, but halfway through the um, undergraduate program, I, I discovered painting. Hmm. And uh, I was an anthropology major and I was really interested in the Amazon region. So when I started painting and drawing, I just decided to drop out. Um, I went down to South America and spent uh, almost a year traveling around there, the Amazon in specific, uh, trying to get to kind of remote uh, Indian tribes. This was in between the border between uh, Peru and Brazil. Um, and I would draw them. So I, so I did that. Uh, and then I came back to Boston and decided to go to art school. Does that work exist somewhere? Yeah, yeah, I actually have it here. Wow, that's incredible. Well, I mean, what was that experience like for you? It was really cool. Um, I was 18. Uh, no, I'm sorry, I was 19. And um, I didn't know how to, how to go about it. I mean, this was 1980, so there was no, like, there was no ecotourism or yeah. anything like that. Uh, so what I would do, the way people get around in the Amazon is mostly by, by water. So you take sort of a large boat that goes from one you know, city on the, on the Amazon to another, and then you take smaller boats down the tributaries. And the smaller boats are bringing goods from concrete to you know, uh, Gatorade or whatever. Uh, and so you can hop a ride in these smaller boats and either pay them you know, a very small amount or help load and unload cargo. Uh, and so I sort of worked down from smaller town to smaller town until I got to a really remote area. And then I hired a, a local guy as a guide who really knew the area, and he and I just started walking. So we, we walked for about 10 days to another river. We met a, a Mayaruna Indian along the way. And that was really cool because it turned out that his mother had been a, um, a Peruvian mestiza, a woman who'd been kidnapped by the Mayaruna tribe when she was 20 years old. And she'd married an Indian guy. They'd had a bunch of kids. And when the tribe was contacted by missionaries, I don't know, 15 years later, at that point, she spoke Mayaruna, she had a husband, she had kids, and she, she stayed with the tribe. Um, so Wilfredo was her son's name. So we, we went to his house, which was on this river called the Yavari. Uh, and then we, somebody lent us a canoe and we just started to go up river. Uh, and so we sort of went from small Indian settlement to small Indian settlement. And I would, you know, talk to the, the head man, um, uh, usually, Pedro, who was my guide, spoke some enough of the language that we were able to get the meaning across. We also had some goods. We had salt, which is very, very hard to come by there. Everybody wants salt. So we'd always trade something, you know, in return for staying somewhere. And the Indians would take me hunting, and they'd let me stick around and draw for a few days, and then we would get back in the boat and head up river. How did you know how to navigate that? Well, I didn't. I, didn't. I mean, that was the thing. I think that you, whenever you do something like this, where you take a risk, uh, there's usually not an exact roadmap. Hmm. In this case, there was, there was none really because nobody was going to the Amazon in 1980. The guidebooks were all about, like, you know, the, um, the Andes and visiting Incan ruins and stuff like that. Um, but so you have to, it's sort of an act of faith. And you have to just show up somewhere and hope that you'll meet somebody who'll, you know, give you a suggestion. Um, 
And that, that usually seems to happen. I mean, it was that when I went to, to Iraq for the first time, it was the same way. I didn't know how I was going to get in because I wasn't with a media organization. Um, I wasn't embedded with the military at that point. So I flew to Kuwait, where a lot of journalists were leaving from to get into Iraq. And I just thought, oh, let me hang around and see what happens. And sure enough, two journalists who I had happened to share a plane with um, into Kuwait tapped me on the shoulder one afternoon and said, hey, we're, we're headed to Baghdad. Do you want to join us? We have a rental car. And so uh, that got me to Baghdad. And then from there, I found a, a hotel to stay at. Um, and then I just began wandering around with my sketch pad until I encountered some American soldiers who told me where their, their small base was. So I showed up at the base. So one thing leads to another. And I think you have to, you have, to have faith that that's, it's going to happen for you. Hmm. Had you traveled much in, like, in early life before the trip to South America? I did. I did. My father uh, is a mathematician. He's retired now, but um, he used to love to take a sabbatical in a foreign country. So when I was little, we spent a year in India, in Bombay. Okay. Uh, we spent a year in France. You know, we, we traveled around a fair amount. Um, and I, I don't remember loving travel. You know, when you're a kid, you kind of want to stay at your school where your friends are. Mm-hmm. Um, but of course, we, <laughs> my brother and I had no choice. Um, and, and it, you know, the memories are, are really remarkable. Um, you know, it was, you don't question it that much when you're 10 years old. And, uh, yeah, so I suppose that I, I had a kind of level of comfort with travel as a, re- excuse me, as a result of that. Yeah, I mean, you're not sitting on a beach drinking margaritas. Like, you are fully immersing yourself into places. Uh, do you ever think about why or, or, or what that says about you and, and your interests? Um, I, th- I mean, it's hard to say. I, I think a lot of people have an, an, an interest in traveling and that not necessarily to some quote-unquote exotic mm. or foreign locale, right? It might just be, let's, let's check out Idaho. Let's go to Boise, Idaho. I've never been there before. Mm. And I think some people prefer, and maybe particularly artists who usually work um, in a solitary manner, you know, they go to their studio and they like the routine of going to their studio. So it doesn't, gen- doesn't generally require them to get out of their studio to sort of find subject matter, as it were. Let's say, you know, certainly over 50% of the subject matter is coming from inside them and they don't need to generate it from outside material. Um, I do think that a certain number of people just really like to travel, as I say, you know, whether it's within the U.S. or, or to further areas. And for me, with my work, I've always been interested in the idea of kind of gathering material somewhere else Mm. and then kind of um, thinking about it, chewing over it, and figuring out a way to regurgitate it through my own consciousness and understanding of of the world and how people work. Mm. I always liked the the novel Moby Dick, you know, that, that Melville had in fact been a whaler for however many years. And he kind of in a sense, condensed his years uh, on those ships, but through this profound psychological, personal meditation on human nature and the kind of tragedy of Ahab and his obsession with the whale, you know, it becomes kind of a a marvelous metaphor. Mm -hmm. Um, So the metaphor came from Melville, you know, but the textures of it came from his experiences. Um, And I like that that template uh, for an artist. Yeah, that's a really interesting way of putting it. I've I've recorded 
270 of these and I haven't, haven't heard somebody put it that way before. Um, I was in, I was literally sitting in history class in the 10th grade when the principal got on the loudspeaker and was like, the, the, the Twin Towers have just been hit. Mm. Um, I grew up on Long Island, so some kids had family that worked out in the city and actually worked in the World Trade Center. You know, in my mind at the time, it's like, okay, like small prop plane is like sticking out of a floor. Of, right, so right. You don't really know what's happening. Yeah. And then he gets back on. It's like second plane is hit, gets on again, towers down, and like school's going crazy. Uh, you know, however old you are in the 10th grade, 15, 16, as much as I could be, uh, I was politicized by that and the next two years, the U.S. involvement in Iraq. Um, I started reading, I was reading Howard Zinn. Um, and so this is like my early politicization. Politiciz- politiciz- um, <laughs> How many syllables are in there? And, and starting to like have my own opinions about uh, the world. Was there a specific event that made you interested in covering either political work or wanting to head over to to the Middle East? Yeah, no, for me, it was definitely that the U.S. was starting a war in the Middle East. Um, and I didn't necessarily support it. As a matter of fact, I remember marching in one of the early marches against the war mm. in Iraq because like most people, it seemed at best a tenuous connection um, between um, invading Iraq and what had happened with bin Laden in, in Afghanistan. But, um, well, one of my inspirations is the American artist Winslow Homer. And there's a lot of his work here in New York at the Met. He had gone to the Civil War as what they called a special artist, which was essentially an embedded artist. And he, uh, he was with the Union Army. He was making uh, sketches mostly around the front line, if not actually in combat. So a lot of the pictures are sort of the men, you know, lolling around in the rain or uh, southern, uh, you know, Confederate prisoners who are kind of suspiciously eyeing their their jailer. Um, There's a a marvelous, very small painting, actually, of a sniper. And so the drawings were turned into etchings um, or engravings. There was a very quick turnaround. And so that was sort of the equivalent of combat photography that would be published in, uh, I, I think, daily... I don't know if Harper's was daily, but at any rate, Harper's in New York City. So these were images from the front line as news. But when Homer got back to New York City, by the end of the war, he took uh, what I think of as his best images and turned them into paintings. Mm. And there, the, the, the sort of transition into oil paint and the size, they also obviously gained in size, become, they add a kind of gravitas to the images, where instead of just being the latest pictures from um, Union soldiers on the front lines, they become about war generally. They take on a universal quality about war, wars in all places and at all times. Um, what it's like to be a conscripted soldier near the front lines, waiting for combat while the rain is coming down, you're wet, tired, lonely, and yet there's a kind of camaraderie around the campfire. This kind of feeling is just palpable in those paintings. And I thought in, in 2003, when we were gearing up for the, for the invasion of Iraq, I thought this is my opportunity to try to do something like that. Mm. Um, I'd always thought it had to have been the, mo- the most amazing experience. <laughs> So I had to 
first I, I looked into getting embedded and it, at all the embedment slots were taken. There was obviously no possibility of that. Um, so therefore I, I said to myself and to my wife, I think I'll just go and just see what happens. And I didn't know how I was going to react to it if it would just be too overwhelming. So I thought if, if, I'm, if I'm not comfortable, I'll just f- I'll fly home. <laughs> it'll, still, it'll still be an experience of a sort. Um, but it was, you know, I, I did cross over into Iraq with these, these French reporters. And it, it proved to be a, a remarkable, um, transforming experience um, in expected and unexpected ways. And so much so that I wound up having to go back and go back. And that certainly required a lot of negotiation with my wife, who was not thrilled about it. On the other hand, we're both artists, and we've both always subscribed to the notion that the important thing as an artist is to do what you need to do to make the work, and that we would support each other in that endeavor. Um, So she did, but there was some negotiation. Uh, There's there's so much running through my mind right now, Steve. (laughs) That first time that you cross over with those French reporters, uh, did you have a place to stay? Did you figure out like all the logistics as you went along? No, no. Well, I mean, that's that was actually that was the the luck that I had encountered these reporters because they were just doing what reporters do, which mm-hmm. was they were in a they had rented a jeep or something like that. It was, it was a large enough vehicle. There were two of them, and we met up with a third um, in Basra, as I remember. Um, and so they they were experienced as far as war zones went. So they would just arrive at a place where the story was happening and their first priority was to get to the story and figure out where to sleep afterwards. Um, It turns out that there's almost always hotels of some sort in or near a war zone. Mm. Um, Often they're luxury hotels that are now down to one or two people and for very cheap rates, they'll put up reporters who show up. Um, so there's always some place, there are there almost always some place to stay. Um, and those kind of details can take care of themselves as long as you're not overly concerned about setting it up ahead of time. Mm. Um, and so you have to be obviously very motivated to get to, in this case, the story. Um, and the story as an artist wasn't quite the same as the story for these reporters. So I wouldn't always accompany them when they would go off to, say, interview some imam. You know, I might just walk around Basra and, and do, do a watercolor or something like that. Or I might make a drawing of them doing a story, like, you know, on some, on some balcony while there was a huge Shia religious ceremony down in the street. And I kind of include the journalists in the, you know, the sense of these enormous crowds down in the street who were, you know, the Shia were generally suppressed under Saddam. So... After the invasion, there was this sort of explosion of Shia religious fervor. Um, and it was, you know, the whole south of Iraq that was kind of electrified by that. So that was that was an, an interesting thing. Yeah, I should say that um, I know of your work through Baghdad Journal, which mm-hmm. is, um, I wish I had it here with me, but it wouldn't fit with all my gear and my work stuff in my backpack. I but, have a copy if you want me to. Oh, cool, cool. I, well, I have some notes to reference, okay. but... It's it's a gorgeous, big, thick, beautiful book that is simultaneously beautiful and heartbreaking and honest. Um, I like that it feels very sort of neutral and just like objective uh, in terms of taking a stance either way. I think you were like very successful at capturing just the experience of being there. Um, I heard you say wonderful before about um, 
describing part of the experience. And I think most people would think, okay, I'm about to enter a war zone, uh, and the emotions would be like terrified, um, uncertain. Did you also feel those emotions when you were going over there? Yeah. Oh, for sure. I mean, my experience of of the war zone in Iraq and Afghanistan was sort of the, um, you know, 90% waiting or peaceful, Mm. 10% absolutely terrified and and ducking for cover. And you usually can't draw in that that 10% period unless you find some really safe little area to kind of tuck yourself away in and draw as quickly as possible. Um, I... When I say wonderful, the thing that was amazing about it for me, well, there were a couple of things. One was being embedded with American soldiers. You know, usually there would be a small unit um, near what, you know, what would pass for the front line. And uh, in a case like that, the soldiers are trying to do, for the most part, the best job they can with very limited resources. Mm. And so they're going out every day on, on missions and patrols. And as long as you're able to keep up with them, you can kind of go along for the ride. So I'd go with my sketchbook um, and a, a camera and whatever else I needed. And whenever they would stop, I would jump out of the Humvee and just start drawing whatever they were doing. Um, there was no attempt at censorship. You know, whatever I drew, I could send immediately to my editor in New York. I had a, I had a small satellite dish. And the officers would never ask to see the work ahead of time. I think that they felt that if I represented what they were doing on a day-to-day basis in a way that they thought was fair, then they were happy to have me along. Mm. And even more than that, I think that they they wanted their their family at home to get some sort of a um, a sense of what they were doing. So when I published this stuff online, or when my editor at Artnet would publish it, you know, he would usually put it up within 24 hours. So while I was still embedded, I could let the soldiers know, and they could they could tell their families to look up the story. Oh, wow. So that was a cool thing. Um, if somebody was killed, it was different, and you had you had to wait till the, their relatives were notified. So you know, in some cases, there were delays like that. But by and large, it was a, uh, to me, when I say wonderful, I guess that was, it was a powerfully emotional experience as an artist to have that kind of depth of immediate involvement with people who are trying to do something, um, whatever their politics are really don't matter in that moment when they have a mission to do. And, you know, almost everybody seemed to feel themselves uh, to be a professional striving to do the job that they could do. Um, and they would take, in some cases, really serious risks to do it well. Mm. Um, and so I felt really privileged to be there and to be able to just sit there and draw. So that was a, that was a special thing for me. Yeah, I, I hope that didn't sound like I was being judgmental. Um, I just, I, I was a fan, or a fan of, or I read a, I think it was called In Extremis, uh, was about um, Marie Colvin, the war correspondent. Oh, um, yeah. She had the eye patch and she went to Libya and she was killed in Syria. Right. And um, I just know like the people describing her would say, or the people in her life were like, well, well, why are you going back again? Why are you going back again? It's so dangerous. And she just had this thing in her where I, I think she had like lived so close to the edge that she kind of had to keep doing it. Um, There's a story that's, it's a dramatization of this, but like, you know, and I'm sure a lot of soldiers hate this, but like the Hurt Locker was kind of about that, right? Like this sort of like, I have to go back because I, I, no other experience will sort of like live up to this. Um, Right. I don't know if, if, if you 
felt that at all. Yeah, no, absolutely. I, th- I think almost everybody that, that returns to a war zone has exactly that feeling. Mm. And in fact, I did a painting about that one time. I, part of the paintings I did about Iraq, I did a series of um, graffiti paintings. Mm. And I, I often used to find interesting graffiti in the you know bathrooms and, and um, porta-potties in, in a war zone. And this one said, I wish I was where I was when I was wishing I was here. And it has a kind of double meaning because does it mean that the soldier was wishing they were back home when they were wishing, mm. or are they on the way out um, and they're, you know, wishing they were back? It's unclear, but I think both things are true in the mentality of somebody that's sort of gotten the, the bug, so to speak. You talked in a way about gaining trust or, or maybe sort of like proving your trust. Did that take a while and were were people reserved initially into allowing you into into their experience yeah definitely people were reserved um I mean, the, the soldiers had sort of a, they were medium interested in having an artist <laughs> along with them. And sometimes they'd take a look and say, oh, wow, that's really cool. But mostly they're focused on what they had to do. And certainly, you know, you can't blame them when they're, you know, they're in a spot where they, they could get killed if they don't pay attention. Mm. Um, and then when they get back to base, they pretty much just want to crash, you know, or play video games or whatever, just zone out. Uh, so I didn't feel like I had some really enormous connection by and large. Um that said, I certainly felt like, you know, well, as I said before, if you can keep up, then that's fine, as long as they don't have to give you any sort of special favors. Um, and and that was kind of part of the attraction. You know, sometimes I remember one time I, I hung out with some snipers in the top of this rooftop in Baghdad, and we had to kind of tumble onto this really tall roof and stay really, really low while the unit that put us, that inserted us in there took off. And the illusion they were trying to maintain was that everybody had left while the snipers were kind of surreptitiously setting up, sitting up in this building. Um, and you feel very vulnerable on top of a building because there are enemy snipers that are trying to pick off the American snipers. So, you know, this kind of, um, you know, I was younger than obviously, and that kind of adventure is, um, it's, it's, uh, you know, it's kind of an aphrodisiac. It's, mm. it's intense. Um, it does kind of, on some level, keep on calling you back. Um, so I think that, that every war photographer, whether it's with, you know, the American army or, or whoever, it doesn't really matter. It's just this kind of sense of, um, of the solidarity that you have with the people around you when you're in kind of a risky situation. Now, I, I, I should just say that for me, that came to a, a particular, an end. Um, you know, I, I, I don't have much interest in doing that again now. And sometime around, I think it was 2011, I was embedded in Afghanistan um, and I was in the middle of a sort of very extended firefight across a field and, and I had to essentially try to flatten myself in between like three inch furrows in this muddy field. And I remember thinking at the time, I don't really need to keep doing this, you know, for my work. I don't need to keep doing that. I've got enough quote unquote material. So if I keep doing this, it's because I really want to be in this kind of risk, which I don't. So I, I realized that that, that was sort of my limit. And when I look at these photographers, war photographers who do it again and again and again, um, you know, they have a much higher tolerance for risk than, than I found I did. Yeah, so there, there's, it's, oh man, this is so interesting. Uh, thank you for allowing me to pick your brain. 
there's your own personal risk, and then there's things you see. So I wanted to read a quote uh, from the Baghdad Journal. This is plate 127. And there's like a bombed out car and there's a woman um, in like a full hijab face down. And it says, a woman killed when the car she was riding in failed to stop after warning shots during the battle. After being shot up, her car collided with a tank. Expecting a bomb, the crew braced for the explosion that never came. I can't imagine what it's like to not only see that once, but see that multiple times, to think that maybe some of these men who you're getting to know at least a bit um, potentially might not be there tomorrow. Uh, how, how much did this change you and, like, uh, I don't know, your, your, your view about the world? Um, I mean... I would have to say that those episodes were, you know, were relatively few in the many trips that I did. Okay. So it wasn't like I was in, you know, the invasion of Fallujah, for example, mm. which was day after day of that. It always seemed to me that there would be like one or, or two days of combat and then everything would kind of quiet down. And it seemed to me that was the nature of what was, for the most part, a guerrilla war. You know, the, the insurgents could never stand up against the U.S. Army for any kind of extended battle. Or whenever they did, they just get pummeled. So they learned to set off an IED, you know, take some shots and then disappear. Um, that what you're referring to was actually a more extended battle that was in Bakuba um, in the summer of 2004, and I, that was one of the the I think that may have been the largest battle in Iraq up till that point, and I think the insurgents were kind of probing to see you know to see if they could pull it off, and it was interesting because they kind of came they were they were unlucky, um, they came closer to pulling it off than they realized. And the, the vehicle that actually that I happened to have been riding in was hit with three RPGs. Um, and one of them was a, an armor-piercing RPG. But that one didn't hit the, the side of the vehicle. It hit the track of the vehicle. Mm. If it had hit the side, it would have probably killed maybe all of us inside the vehicle. And that would have stopped the column from moving. And then it would have been much easier to start hitting the other vehicles. And it was, so it was just this sort of strange thing, the way it happened, that, that our lives were saved and that, that it turned into a route. Um, so basically, I guess what I'm trying to say is unless the insurgents got lucky, it tended to be relatively fast. Mm. Um, and even the battle or the, the, the firefight in Afghanistan that I was describing, it went on for hours, but it was a kind of a moving thing. And at the end of the day, the, the insurgents just melted away you know, it was weird how you, they, the army could never locate them after this intense battle. Um, and then that would be it. And that might be it for the rest of the month. Mm. So, um, uh, yeah, I guess it's a long way of saying that I didn't get the sort of unrelenting combat um, and day-to-day -day death that you would expect in the most intensive combat zones. Okay. Um, and, and not only that, but, but when I was in an area, I mean, when I was, for example, there was an area in Baghdad uh, called uh, Haifa Street, and every day there was combat. But again, every day it would be different. You know, one day it would be snipers. The next day it might be an IED. Um, so, yeah, so it... it um, and let me, let me try to answer your question from a different angle. One of the most intense times that I spent was not in Baghdad Journal because I, I made a bunch of trips after that book was published. 
it was at the Baghdad ER. And this was, oh, in, yeah. this was in 2006, as I remember. So it was during the surge. Um, and during the surge, there were a lot of combat casualties because um, I can't remember how many people we had. Was it close to like 250,000? Anyway, there were a lot of American soldiers in Iraq. Um, and they were, they were sort of aggressively pushing into the Sunni triangle. So there was a lot of combat and a lot of casualties. So every day at the Baghdad ER, casualties were coming in. And they were American, they were Iraqi, any sort of Iraqi army units would be flown into there. This was what had been originally Saddam's personal hospital in the green zone. And there'd be Iraqi casualties who were hit within the sort of the neighborhood, so to speak. So there was death around me every day, and I spent a month there. Um, the thing that, that, made it, um, that made it manageable was that it was really a challenge to draw in the operating room or the emergency room. Like it would always be crowded with people. And in order to get a drawing of both the victim and the people that were trying to save their life, their life, I had to constantly move around to see, to try to see everything. And while I'm doing that, doctors are often asking me to pass them stuff. So it's this very intimate, personal relationship with, with uh, what's going on. But on the other hand, there's an incredibly difficult job of trying to make it visually coherent. Um, I remember there was one time when a soldier came in from an IED and they had to operate, his testicles were just ridden with shrapnel and I, oh I just God. couldn't draw it. But other than that, you know, I mean, let's put it this way, all the waste baskets had red plastic bags in them um, because every, there was blood everywhere and, and, you know, limbs were constantly being amputated. And sometimes you'd follow a soldier from the ER to the operating room and, you know... Sometime in two in the morning, after six hours of operating, he would pass away. So um, other times they'd bring people in that were already dead, and they'd wait for a chaplain to come in and pronounce them dead before putting them in a body bag. So I'd be drawing all this. Um, and I remember one time taking a cigarette break. Um, I smoked back then. And uh, suddenly I just began to weep. I, like, to me, it seemed out of nowhere. And I realized it was, you know, kind of an emotion that had accumulated. Of course. You know, but I, I had been um, unconscious or relatively unconscious of that till that particular moment. Um, and of course, if it was like that for me, you can imagine what it's like for the doctors and nurses who, you know, they did, I can't remember, a six months or a year rotation. Um, but... Uh, they were, uh, boy, they were they were just a marvelous bunch. And I did. They asked the, they asked me to do a slideshow of my work at the end of my embedment, um, and I did. And you know, I remember one of the doctors coming up, and and he was almost choking up. And they never do while they're working, you know. But I, but he he thanked me for for doing this as kind of a an artistic record of their endeavors, and um, I remember a nurse also telling me that. You know, sometimes nurses would get tattoos of the names of the servicemen who had passed away while they were trying to save them, and they they were they were generally discouraged from doing that because um, you know the whole place is set up so that you try not to hold on to those memories too much. Wow, I don't know if this relates directly, but Sebastian Junger wrote about this in Tribe, and oh God, Rebecca Solnit, I think her name is. She wrote. Uh, Oh, Tim, my memory. A Paradise Built in Hell, I think it's called, but... I don't know that. So they're essentially both about um, 
how civilization keeps on during times of war and not only keeps on, but like people kind of find purpose. And so she even talked about like communities that endured the Holocaust or communities during World War One. Um, and not to say that those were, were good things at all, but just sort of how people find the will and almost, uh, yeah, like I said, the purpose to keep going in those times. Uh, and it's always through like community. And uh-huh, I, would, right. I would imagine that that camaraderie and that community felt by the men, it, it almost becomes in a, obviously I haven't been there, I, I, but it, it almost sounds like maybe enjoyable is not the right word, but um, normal or yeah, maybe the type I, of camaraderie. Maybe, maybe life affirming in a yeah. certain kind of okay. way. I, I do think, I mean, just look at what's going on in Ukraine right now. Mm. You know, it was kind of incredible how naturally the Ukrainians resisted the Russian invasion. Mm. Um, I mean, when Zelensky said to Biden, um, I need ammunition, not a ride, you know, I, I mean, who can't not cheer? <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. when you hear something like that, it's it's kind of an amazing part of the human DNA to resist oppression and to protect your community when it's existentially challenged. Yeah. So, you know, of course, in, in our case, this was an invasion of Iraq, so it's quite a different thing. And I think that, um, you know, it, it's a cliche that people say that soldiers fight for one another. I think it's a, it's a, it's a true cliche. Um, the sort of bonding within the unit is incredibly powerful, mm. maybe especially for young men. Um, but um, there's certainly a big part of the human DNA generally that responds to crisis situations uh, with resources that you don't necessarily know you have um, until something happens. And I remember that, you know, there was some hay made about this poll where people polled young Americans about if America was invaded, would they stay and fight or move away? Mm. And the commentators were dismayed at the large percentage that said they would leave. But I was just shaking my head and thinking that there's no way that that's true. You know, that people, nobody knows until something like that happens. Right. But I think it's a, it's a, it really is a universal human um, urge to, to defend one's community. And for better or worse, you know, that gets expressed in war. Um, and... Um, it's, yeah, I mean, I, just to, to circle back to what you said before about wonderful and, and my sense of having been deeply privileged in being able to draw these situations. Um, and, you know, there's such a mix of emotions tied to it. You know, there's certainly some pride, I, I would, I think it's fair to say, in generally feeling that most of the young Americans in, in the army were, were like decent kids mm. that were trying to do the right thing. You know, again, divorced from the 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 mission itself, the, the reason you know whether this justification for having been in Iraq, um, trying to do the right thing. I re- you know one one perennial issue in Iraq was suicide bombers, and a kind of adjacent issue was soldiers shooting at vehicles because they were afraid that they ha- they were you know contained a suicide bomber and then finding out that it was a family inside you know it was sort of an awful thing that happened again and again and again um, and you know there's multiple reasons for why it why it happened and certainly the woman who was killed in, in Bakuba that I drew there that was a situation of, of that happening um, but I also remember one time where there had just been a big firefight this was in Haifa Street. 
and the soldiers were keeping the crowd that had begun to form at bay. And there was a guy in a, in a car who wouldn't stop. And the soldier kept on giving him the signal to stop kind of multiple different ways. And you could see the guy was angry and he wouldn't stop and he wouldn't stop. And the guy next to the soldier was saying, shoot him. But the soldier, he didn't do it. He wouldn't pull the trigger. And finally, the guy stopped and got out of his, his cab instead of in disgust, you know, threw his hands, his angry gesture at the Americans and, and stomped off. But he could have been shot easily. Right. And I just thought this was a young, uh, uh, it was a, 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 a platoon or a, a company from Louisiana. And uh, I, I was just sort of in awe of that soldier because, you know, when it, when it comes down, when you're in that position of maybe you're going to be blown up and you have to decide what you're going to do, you know, he really had waited and waited because he really, he just did not want to pull that trigger. Mm. And, and his instinct proved to be right. So that was, uh, that was an amazing thing to see. When we teach um, middle school social studies, we start with River Valley civilizations, um, which doesn't include any uh, civilization in my eyes that didn't have a writing system, but that's like a different, uh, a different point. But we talk about Mesopotamia, and we talk about the, the Fertile Crescent and the Cradle of Civilization, the Tigris and Euphrates rivers. Yeah. So this is... Uh, historically uh, and naturally a very beautiful area. Uh, Baghdad at times has had like cosmopolitan elements. Um, you mentioned Afghanistan. Afghanistan was, was once, if, unless I'm wrong, part of the hippie trail, which cut through like India and Pakistan and Afghanistan. Yeah, for sure. So, you know, I, I've asked you about a, a lot of things that are quite horrific, but uh, in your time there, were you able to, to see any things of, of great beauty? Yeah, um, I mean, Iraq is a, it's an interesting country because it has huge areas which are, are more or less desert. And by desert, it's not even really sand. The soldiers sometimes would describe it as moon dust. Mm. It's this very, very thin powdery sand where if you put your, your boot into a, or your shoe into a, a dune, you can just pull your sock out. You know, it just, it just kind of sucks your, mm. your shoe right off. Um, and so there's enormous, very flat areas that are like that, which, which are not exactly beautiful. I mean, it's not like some sort of, you know, huge sand dunes of the Sahara. But then there are also areas that are tremendously beautiful, which are around the rivers. Mm-hmm. So as you say, the, the two rivers, the Tigris and the Euphrates, um, spend a lot of time, especially around the Tigris. And, you know, usually within, I guess, a mile to a half mile on either bank, there are farms. And you know their date farms, as, as well as as well as other um, tomatoes and, and other produce, and um, small adobe houses, and um, you know cows and horses and donkeys, and it's just it's just stunning. And I often, I mean, I went through these areas many times, both embedded and unembedded, uh, and I often thought, God, if if this place was peaceful, you know, what a place to have a home along these along these beautiful rivers. Um, Baghdad itself is an interesting city. Um, it ha- it sort of reflects its leaders. As Saddam especially left a huge footprint on Saddam on, on Baghdad because he leveled so much of it in order to do enormous building projects. Some of them, are, a lot of it is art, brutalist architecture from the 60s, 70s, and 80s. Many of them are huge apartment buildings for people in the Bath Party um, or other friends and favorites of his and, and their families. Um, he also did some beautiful institutional buildings and monuments, 
monument to the unknown soldier is is actually quite a, a gorgeous monument designed by a famous Iraqi artist. Um, and then there's the old parts of the city, which um, are the architecture is known as Shenashil. It's a it's a traditional Arab architecture, which has very narrow streets, tall buildings with um, kind of enclosed balconies with little sort of lattice woodwork where the windows are, so that you can't look directly in, but people can look out. Um, and then they usually have courtyards in the middle. Um, those neighborhoods are stunning. Although, unfortunately, like the, the middle class and the upper middle class in Baghdad and the rich, as far as I could see, didn't seem to have any interest in restoring those old buildings. Mm. They always wanted new buildings. So those parts of town were usually falling apart. But I spent a lot of time wandering in the tiny little streets and the souks and places like that um, and sitting down and drawing. And that was a great experience too because every time I would draw among the Iraqis, I would almost invariably attract a, a lot of attention. Um, I tried to go to tea houses to draw because I, that way I wouldn't usually have people around me. But if I was drawing on the street, I'd often have you know six or seven or eight guys like right up next to me kind of commenting and talking with each other as I'm making the drawing. And sometimes I would do like a portrait of somebody and there'd be a whole round of... <laughs> and, and, but then, then, you know, people would, would often invite me over to their, to their offices to have tea afterwards. Uh, the Iraqis very much reflect a, a commonplace in Arab culture, which is a, a generosity uh, towards visitors. And, um, and as far as being an American, that was interesting because being an American artist is different from being an American soldier, uh, and even so, Iraqis had a whole spectrum of views on the Americans throughout the time that I was there. But um, but I wound up meeting a lot of Iraqis, uh, including a bunch of Iraqi artists who I wound up spending quite a bit of time with. Yeah, I was fascinated by those stories. You mentioned um, a tattoo artist, I think, also, um, and some artists. And I was wondering about like if there was anyone specifically that you connected with there that like you're still in touch with. Well, I have not been in touch with Iraqi artists lately. I was following uh, uh, at least one on Instagram before my Instagram <laughs> okay. account was hacked. And we, we traded messages from time to time. This Ahmed Al-Safi, who was a wonderful, is a wonderful sculptor and painter. Um, and he had, a, he had a great studio in Baghdad. Ironically, the period of the sanctions was very good for Iraqi artists. This was the period, I guess it was about 10 years or so, leading up to the war. Mm. And... Uh, the sanctions had gotten increasingly tough, but there were a lot of international organizations in Baghdad that were there to negotiate with Saddam and monitor the sanctions and bring in aid relief and stuff like that. So the all these aid officers and UN officials uh, were very interested in Iraqi culture. Hmm. So a lot of them bought art. So there were many Iraqi galleries in Baghdad, um, and artists did pretty well. Ahmed had his own studio in an, in an interesting kind of working class area of Baghdad. So I used to take a bus from my hotel down to where Ahmed lived and we'd have breakfast together and sometimes paint during the day. When I needed art supplies, they, they would go with me and should have shown me where to go to find ink or paper or whatever. Um, so that was very meaningful. But um, yeah, Ahmed, then there was a guy named Isam Pasha who was a, a muralist. And uh, I met him, actually, he was working as a translator for a Florida National Guard unit in Baghdad. And so we uh, got together after that embedment, and he introduced me to Ahmed. He showed me this, um, this great kind of um, 
center of, of artistic life in Baghdad, uh, which was a, a coffee shop. Um, and uh, so the name will come to me in a second. But anyway, every, every Friday, which is the holy day, uh, the street where this, where this tea house was located would close down and all the booksellers would put out their books. And so students and writers and intellectuals and artists uh, of every stripe would gather to peruse the books. Shabander, that was the name of the, the tea house. And then they'd go down to the Shabander and, uh, and smoke hookahs and, and drink round of tea, <laughs> round after round, into the early afternoon. Uh, so, and I used to sometimes draw in there too. It was, uh, it was, it was great. Um, a year after I left in 2004, or maybe it was after 2006, it was bombed um, and destroyed. Uh, I think by it, maybe that ISIS was getting started at that point. So you know the 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 sort of worst of the um, Iraqi jihadi um, revolutionaries, the jihadis were definitely out to kind of destroy what they perceived as um, intellectual and artistic culture. Because mm. it's Western-influenced? I think they saw it as being Western, people that might sympathize with, you know, Western influences. Mm. Uh, yeah. When I was reading the book, because um, in my mind I was thinking, oh, he, he must have just taken photos when he was there and done the work afterwards. Uh, so it's, it's really cool. And it's, it's surprising to hear that even like in, in the hospital, in the midst of this, like you're, you're painting and you're sketching. Was there ever an issue with getting work out of Iraq, like going through customs and, and having anything taken? No. Um, customs officials never expressed any interest. I think usually I would go through Jordan, um, let me see, from Afghanistan, I went through um, Dubai. And no, no, I, I, they would just cursorily see a bunch mm. of sketch pads and completely ignore them. The only problem I had was the very first trip, um, right after the invasion, there was a whole, a whole lot of looting going on in yeah. Baghdad. And that looting encompassed everything from like local people stealing, you know, copper um, wire and piping um, to busts of Saddam um, to you know, raiding his palaces and you know whatever seemed to be of value, and so a lot of a lot of people bought stuff. Oh, the other thing that was that was looted that's really important was the um, um, the the I forget what it was called the Baghdad Museum, which contained all these antiquities. Oh, wow. That was famously looted. I don't remember what percentage, but you know, a fairly good percentage. Also, the Baghdad Fine Arts Museum was looted. So there were a fair number of both antiquities and fine art pieces that were smuggled out of Iraq. So meanwhile, I had, in my first trip, I had spent a week up in the north, in the Kurdish area, and I visited a gallery and bought a few pieces by this Kurdish artist. So, and then I also went to a marketplace in Baghdad and bought a, a carpet, you know, kind of a, a beautifully patterned carpet. Um, and so, so I had my stuff. Uh, none of it was looted, to the best of my knowledge. <laughs> but as soon as the customs people saw it, they grabbed it. Um, I was really upset about the the fine arts piece, which was by this Kurdish artist, who I think is a really talented artist. He was in his 30s when he was killed by Saddam's uh, sort of secret police mm -hmm. during the whole period when the Kurds, this is right after the first Gulf War, and the Kurds were fighting against Saddam's, uh, uh, Saddam's military. Um, so I wanted to try to rescue this piece. So the second trip, I actually spent some time in... Um, uh, 
in, in Jordan tracking down this piece. And I wound up at this warehouse, which was, it was sort of like that scene in um, Raiders of the Lost Ark, mm-hmm. where there's this huge warehouse in which, the, in which the Ark turns out to be stored. But in this case, everything was stuff that people had snagged from people leaving Iraq. And there were portraits of Saddam, there were sculptures of Saddam, wow. there was furniture, there were rugs, there, was, there were antiquities. Um, and it wasn't clear where any of it was going to wind up. But I, was, I, I managed to hook up with somebody who hooked me up with somebody else, and I bribed the right people, and I actually got that painting back. Wow. <laughs> That's amazing. Um, how, how far after this or in between trips, uh, when did you go to Guantanamo Bay? Uh, oh, God. Now you're, my, this is where my mind gets fuzzy. So, uh, well, this, Guantanamo Bay was after all the trips to war zones, Okay, I believe. You know, I probably have the magazine here if you want me to, to find out. But it, it's all right. it would have been around 2011, 2012, something like that. Um, How did you ever get access there? Well, that was through Harper's Magazine. Okay. So the, I went there to illustrate a story for Harper's. Um, and they did a, uh, a portfolio of drawings. I made two trips there. And um, ostensibly, uh, the idea was to draw prisoners uh, who, were, who were in Guantanamo and then, oddly enough, when I got there, I was abruptly informed that I, it was impossible to draw prisoners. They wouldn't let me draw any prisoners. I would imagine, yeah. Uh, well, I mean, you know, they, they had, somebody had agreed ahead of time that I was going to be able to go there to draw prisoners. So I wound up, anyway, um, drawing everything but the prisoners. And that in itself was interesting because I got to go to uh, Camp X-Ray, which was where the, uh, the initial... Um, Prisoners of war from Afghanistan were brought in 2001, sort of right off the battlefield. And it's where the the torture went on. They had these huts kind of set up in Camp X-Ray, as well as these essentially pens made out of chain link. Um, The waterboarding, I think, only went on for something like a year, um, and then it was shut down. And at that point, the administration relied on... um, I forget what they call it, a type of extradition where people were sent to other countries like Egypt and they were tortured there. Uh, and the, the, whole, the, obvi- the whole problem with this, besides the obvious problem that we were supporting torture, was that this was not just, not only to get intelligence over finding bin Laden or whatever, but also to prosecute people that were, had been involved in 9-11. And of course, you can't prosecute people using evidence which has gotten under torture in this country. Mm-hmm. So they were sort of they, they had undermined their own uh, their own uh, mission. All of that happened, I think, within a relatively quick period uh, before it was mostly shut down. But they still wound up with a huge number of people in in Gitmo, um, some of whom were absolutely committed jihadis. Um, others of whom may have been there, you know, by accident in the sense that somebody might have sold them out for some reason altogether. I think that by the time I was there, they had sort of, they had sorted through, for the most part, as far as I could tell, the people that really shouldn't have been there. But the problem was they didn't know what to do with the people that were there. Mm. Um, anyway, it was it was very powerful and moving to make drawings of Camp X-Ray because it had been abandoned at that point for, you know, 10 years. 
And the whole thing was kind of walled off. It was in this really remote part of Cuba. Like there was nothing else around it. And in fact, it was within, you could see the border of actual Cuba, this sort of range of mountains where there were these guard towers in the distance. And that whole area was no man's land because both sides, Cuba and the U.S., had mined their respective areas around the border. Um, so it, it, it only had, you know, sort of iguanas and, and banana rats in it. It was this strange, wild area. And then you could, you could see the sea just on the, on the other side. Um, and then here was this area that was completely overgrown with vines. They had re-roofed the um, areas where people had been detained and waterboarded because that they needed that for evidence. So with my, with my minder, I was just able to wander around for several days and just draw. Uh, and it was just, you can imagine how powerful like the kind of ghosts in this place were. So that was great. Um, and then I also went to some high security prisons and uh, drew that. Um, everywhere I went, my minder was along this girl, Trish, who was great. I often included her in the drawings. Um, and uh, yeah, it was, it was also a powerful experience. But it became, a sh it was a show, I showed that work in Postmasters. Um, and I, I called the show The Snow Leopard, which is a reference to a Peter Matheson book. Yeah, yeah, of course. Where he, he describes knowing before he sets out with this wildlife biologist, George Schaller, that he's probably not even going to see a snow leopard because they are that elusive. And he's got to be okay with not really seeing it and still write about the experience of wanting to see it. So it was sort of about the presence of something which you don't actually see. Mm -hmm. And he never actually does see it in that book, yeah. And he never sees a snow leopard, right? This is an aside, but one of my biggest takeaways from that book was um, in the Himalayas, people were talking about some sort of like Yeti-like creature, um, not in a supernatural way, but in a very matter-of-fact way, like, oh yeah, like this, this thing exists up here. And he was very shocked to hear that. Mm -hmm. um, I thought that was pretty cool. Uh, when you say minder, are you talking about someone from the U.S. or there was like a Cuban like person escorting you and making sure you were? No, no, from the U.S. Okay. See, the thing about Gitmo is it's it is. Um, I'm not sure what it is technically, but it's definitely part of the U.S. Yeah. So the only Cubans that are there are Cubans that have been, I guess, kind of grandfathered in. Like maybe they were living there when when the U.S. first acquired Cuba. Or for, actually, technically, they're renting Cuba. Now it's coming back to me. And as it was explained to me, the U.S. still sends a check to Cuba every year huh. uh, for something like a couple of thousand dollars. You know, it was rent that was set up in 1900 or whenever they first moved to, to, into Gitmo. And every year the Cuban government refuses to cash the check. Oh, so there's this yeah. odd little kabuki um, sort of uh, uh, official <laughs> declaring its official status. Um, yeah, that must be from the like Spanish-American War or something. That's that's yeah, probably yeah, something like that. Interesting. Exactly. It probably dates from out just after that war. Um, in any case, it's huge. Gitmo is huge. It's a giant um, naval base. You know, they have a high school there. Um, they have a large permanent community. So the the prisoner part of it is actually a small section of it, um, which is kind of in the the remote part of it. Hmm. I was, but anyway, yeah, my, my minder was was from the military. I mean, she was part of the, um, you know, press public relations unit. And uh, and they were very funny. I mean, they had a great sense of humor. Um, <laughs> I was drawing. So it, one of the things I was there to draw, I forgot to mention this, was the trial um, of one of the guys that was possibly involved in planning 9-11. 
except that he had been involved also in the bombing of the USS Cole, or at least they were trying to establish mm. that. Um, so I was drawing in the tri- I was drawing the trial itself, and I made the mistake of drawing where the doors were in the trial room. And then you have to, that work I had to show to a censor. And the censor said, oh, no, no, you can't, you can't show the doors. You know, that would show Al-Qaeda how to get in here. And I remember one of the, the Marine guys in the press office was like, oh, yeah, don't show them the doors. Al-Qaeda will be sending their submarine over here to assault that place <laughs> in no time. So it was like they totally knew that, that the security was over the top. There was another drawing that I did, actually, that was kind of fun, where I was, we're looking at this, chain link fence with green camouflage attached to it. And then there's, there's, um, there are these two light posts and you, you can only see sort of these vague tops of buildings over the top of this fence, but nothing specific at all. But I was told by the minder, I'm sorry, but you can only draw the view in between those two light posts. To, to anybody else, it would, it would mean nothing, whatever information you could get from, to the right or the left. But I made this drawing where in the middle of the drawing, there was that section of chain link fence with blue sky above it and the two light posts, and then completely blank paper on either side where I wrote, forbidden to draw. <laughs> so it was this sort of play on, you know, using negative space and the mm-hmm. whiteness of the paper to your advantage in a watercolor and also the kind of absurd censorship uh, the absurd lengths to which the military went to protect their 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 venues. When you were over in the Middle East, um, and excuse me if this is like just an incredibly ignorant question, but uh, like you were never armed, right? No, no, I, I was not armed. Um, I don't, I don't think I ever saw reporters that were. Although I'm, I'm not sure. Um, I was not armed, not because of a um, a philosophical or moral reason. I've just I've never grown up with guns. I, I'm not comfortable with using them, um, so it wouldn't have occurred to me to to, to buy one and, and bring one. On the other hand, in situations of combat, I certainly was I, I sometimes would pass ammunition to the soldiers. Mm-hmm. So I didn't I didn't feel that there was some kind of wall. Um, that I wasn't supposed to violate. And, and actually, that, it, that gets to a, a larger question, which is the, the notion of neutrality. Mm. Because I, I never described myself as a journalist, and, and I, I suppose a, an important part of journalism is that you are supposed to maintain a sort of journalistic neutrality. I felt as an artist, my job was kind of the opposite. Um, my job is to subjectively respond to things, not mm. objectively. So in general, I never looked for the truth, so to speak. Hmm. I always looked for my truth. And my truth might simply be enjoying the company of the people around me, liking them, and wanting to kind of extend my feelings of empathy for their situation into the drawing. To make you feel that you were there, but that also you were emotionally involved with the people around you. Hmm. So... You know, when, when I'm drawing Iraqis in a cafe, I, I'm, I'm usually really enjoying them. I'm enjoying the two guys playing chess. I want to show that, that, co- that tea shop in the kind of beautiful, warm light that I'm feeling it in. Um, if there's Iraqis on the street, kind of everyday Iraqis, um, kids coming home from school, um, I, I want to I, I sort of depict whatever emotional reaction I'm having to the scene. Mm. Um, and so if I felt my life was endangered, 
and the people around me are firing back, then yeah, I didn't have any trouble helping them fire back. Not, not that I ever picked up a weapon and fired. Right. Um, but on the other hand, I suppose if a post was being endangered of being overrun, uh, yeah, would I have fired back? Of course. Right. Um, but I, it wasn't the question of neutrality wasn't one that I that I really dwelt on, because I just felt that in some sense it was irrelevant to my mission there as an artist. Is there some sort of again? I probably sound like an idiot for people who who actually are there, but like in order to be riding along with the men who are at war, like is there some sort of waiver? Like, what if you're hit by a straight bullet or something, and uh, can they get in trouble for you being there? No. Um, yeah, I'm sure. I can't remember now, but every embedment there seemed to be a lot of paperwork. Okay, I'm yeah. sure there were. I'm sure I t- signed tons of waivers. Um, I got insurance uh, through Lloyd's of London when I did these trips. Uh-huh. Um, I think most journalists get ins- have insurance, life insurance, and um, disability insurance through their employers. Uh, I think if you don't have any of them, I'm speculating, but I think that the army would probably send you, you know, if you were, if you were wounded by an IED along with soldiers, you'd probably get sent to um, an army facility mm. um, and treated there. I don't know if they'd present you with a bill or not. Um, so yeah, I don't 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 fully know about okay. that. Luckily, I was talking to a colleague today about how I was very excited to come talk to you today, and uh, he's a little bit older than I am. Uh, I've dated myself a bit here by saying uh, how old I was when nine eleven happened. But he was like, "Man, think about when this all started. Our students that we currently teach—they weren't even born yet." And for us, it feels like this is so, this was so current and like the reverberations of it still exist today. Um, So I wanted to ask you about something that is uh, much more current. Uh, You were present at, or I'm saying it like it's a fact, but uh, were you present at the the insurrection on the Capitol? No, no, sadly I was not. I, uh, I did do drawing at the Million MAGA March, which Ah, happened I think about a month and a half before that. Um, and, and that was interesting. I, I got some good drawings from it, but, um, yeah, no, to my lasting regret, especially because I had spent a lot of time in, in Portland, Oregon during the riots in the summer oh, really? of 2020. Um, uh, so I spent a couple of weeks there, um, drawing that, including at some of the craziest, um, parts of it where, you know, large crowds were assaulting the federal building, um, and getting tear gassed. And as a matter of fact, I got I got hit myself by uh, the, the non-lethal munitions from the from the the, uh, the police. Um, so that was that was really remarkable. Uh, and given that I'm interested in the whole kind of milieu of the politics of 2020 and and the sort of ex- extremes of both sides, I definitely wish that I had been there. Yeah, so I'm very curious about that, and I'm not going to ask you to like take a political stance, but I very specifically remember watching a video from Portland, and um, there were barriers essentially, like police barriers that had been picked up, and one side of it was, and I'm I'm going to stereotype, but you know, um, like black blocks is what we called it, like in my teen punk days, um, but basically. Uh, you have Trumpers on one side or very conservative people on one side and then you have uh, very left-wing people on one side and they're pushing the barriers into each other, like just this this 
this collision, this like amorphous blob of humanity, and things are getting hurled on both sides, mm. bottles and projectiles. And I'm watching this, and I'm just like, all right, these are adults. Just, just look at what we've become. Look at what we are doing. Um, similar to like what I asked you about rock, like when, when you're there covering this as an artist, you're seeing some really extreme stuff. What do you walk away from that thinking and feeling? I mean, to me, it's a little bit like um, like I was describing Melville and Moby Dick before, mm. and I don't I don't mean to equate myself with Melville in this analogy at all. But so much as that, you observe people doing um, doing things in situations that may be very extreme, and so you see all different facets of human nature, right? Mm you see the people that are troublemakers and you can kind of spot them right away. The people mm. that want to start the flame, the people that are the first to jump in um, and start flailing away when uh, the tear gas starts um, being launched, the ones that light the fireworks. Um, and then you can see the people that are kind of really motivated by a political ideal. And for them, I think of it as, as uh, the, the word sacred truth comes to mind. Mm. And it has nothing to do with whether or not I agree with their political beliefs, but you can see how deeply they believe in an ideal and how fearlessly they will stand up to voice it. Mm. Um, how they will, they can face down a mob if they need to, or they can, they can inspire a crowd, or they can just be the first one in the line um, to, to, to speak up and be completely kind of charged and inspired in what they're saying. Mm. Um, and of course that, and, and that applies by the way, in, in, to January 6th, as much as it does yeah. to Portland, Oregon in, uh, you know, July, end of July, 2020. Um, so to me, it's kind of a fascinating meditation on what it is to be human. Mm-hmm that you see the whole, sort of whole spectrum of different types. And as an, as an artist, a painter and a drawer who thinks of myself as a storyteller, this is kind of the, this is the gist. These are the, these are the Shakespearean characters of the story. Mm. Um, so for example, in, in, in Portland, um, there was an uneasy alliance between Black Lives Matter and Antifa. And both of them were, were strongly represented there. Um, when I got there, God, I can't remember. It was, it was somewhere around the end of July. Um, uh, anyway, it was, it was in July and there was, things had really heated up. So there was this, this huge fence around this, this federal courthouse. And every night, giant crowds would gather there. It would start with a kind of call to arms from a couple of blocks away where Black Lives Matter activists would, ha would bring people up to the mic and talk about activism, um, talk about, you know, the history of the civil rights movement, talk about how that sort of morphed into the protests around George Floyd. So it was very kind of consciousness-raising stuff. Um, and, you know, very, very strong, very powerful. Um, and then the attention would kind of shift two blocks over to the, to the federal courthouse. And then Antifa would kind of come into play and start launching commercial-grade fireworks at the courthouse. This would be right about sunset. So um, crowds would kind of gather, and this was like part two of the evening when the evening's festivities would really turn into this kind of riotous orgy. Um, and... Then people would work themselves up and they'd start shaking the fence and they'd start trying to pull it down. 
then the the federal, I don't know what they were, maybe a mix of, of local and federal police would sort of come filing out, you know, all in full battle gear and gas masks with their uh, their tear gas at the ready, fire a couple of rounds off and then retreat. And so there'd be this back and forth. And if things really, you know, got good, so to speak, in the eyes of the extreme activists, they'd succeed in yanking down the fence, the police would charge them, and then there'd be this kind of running street battles you know, or they'd be hurling stuff back and forth. And uh, and it was very, very dramatic. And there was more than a little tension between some of the Black Lives Matter activists and the Antifa people, where the Antifa people always seemed to be setting fires, both literally and figuratively. And then the Black Lives Matter people would often send over representatives to stamp out the fire and say, knock it off. This actually isn't helping the cause. Mm. Um and there was one drawing I did, which, which was of, of exactly that confrontation going on, which I just thought was absolutely fascinating, especially because you could see this kind of very old school punk rock culture among the Antifa people who were all camped out in this park in downtown, downtown Portland. Um, you could see this was a very old, had old cultural roots in Portland. And then the Black Lives Matter people who were, you know, mostly black for one thing. Portland is a very white city. So there's lots and lots of kind of liberals that would come in from the city and from the suburbs to support the overall movement, but they didn't fully understand the difficult politics and negotiations that were going on. Mm. Anyway, this is a, a long answer to say no, no. that I, it was complicated. I really enjoyed the complicated politics of it. I thought felt the conflicts within the movement were fascinating to draw, as well as the conflict with the federal government. Um, and... Uh, You know, I remember drawing one, a young woman that got up who was, she had actually not been, she had not been scheduled to speak and she had to kind of fight to get up to the microphone. She was just as fierce as you can imagine. She was, I mean, she was beautiful. She was powerful. She was fierce. And she just began kind of almost excoriating the crowd. Like, you have to be with us. You have to support us. We're willing to give our lives. You have to give your lives if you're going to be here at all. Now, she was taking this really extreme position, which I didn't personally agree with, or I didn't see eye to eye with at all. And yet it was very moving because she was so powerful. Mm. And the drawing that I made, I think, had nothing to do with my intellectual feelings about what she was saying. It had everything to do with the power with which she was saying it the conviction and beauty with which she was showing that. Now, I feel like I could find the same power in somebody in January 6th, some crazy, um, say, gun guy, and I've drawn some of those people too. Um, so I don't have to politically see eye to eye with people to find the power, the human, as I said before, almost Shakespearean power, in, in their message, in their body language, in what they say about us as human beings. Yeah, I think you could probably even trace that back to Iraq too with the people on both sides of that conflict. It's interesting that you say like the sort of the punk roots of Antifa. Um, I don't remember, my, 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 there are things lost in my memory, but I don't know if it was like G7 or G20, um, but like Antifa and Black Blocks, uh, have roots in the, yeah in the '90s in Seattle and in Portland and it, they mm -hmm. existed in relative obscurity and it's it's interesting to see it now as a mainstream term that like the 
the president was was referencing. Um, that's just I don't know, kind of a strange thing for me. So you knew the term Antifa uh-huh, a long time ago. That's so really there, this may sound silly to some people, uh, but there was um, and maybe it still exists something called Crime Think. Uh, it was like very much like an anarchist publication kind of. Uh, existed like behind the curtain. You didn't know exactly who was running it, um, but they put out a lot of information. And there was a book called Days of War, Nights of Love, which was sort of like the seminal text for uh, people who were like very, you know, sort of um, Mm anti-government at the time. Yeah, and it it has its roots there. It's it's very interesting to see it as a mainstream term and movement. Yeah, Um, yeah, no, that that must have been fascinating. So you were kind of a punk rock sympathizer with that? uh, Oh, yeah, and I mean, so... that's still in me um, at 35, almost 36, and now having traveled the world. And I do my best to not be dogmatic about anything anymore. And um, that's one thing I even try to do with students is that uh, sort of exactly to your point, and it's hard for young people especially to see this, but it's like, hey, despite the fact that you... So let's say you take... uh, right now what might be the stereotypical liberal stance and say like, okay, a Trump voter is is racist and ignorant. And it's like, yes, that exists with some people. But if you look at if you look at the root of a lot of the the malcontent or the discontent with people on the right and on the left, it is very similar. Yeah, I uh, think so too. Especially in terms of like the economic position that people are in. Yeah. And they're pitted against each other between these, uh, excuse me, these stupid fucking barriers when it's like uh, you're pointing your finger at the wrong guy. Um, so, yeah, it's, it, it's I, I don't think of that I'm like softening on my stances my, as I'm getting older, but I am, I am, I'm seeing how similar people are and I'm seeing dogmas as like a, ve- or, you know, strong ideological beliefs as like a very uh, destructive thing. Um Right, right. No, I agree. And I think that, that, that in these incredibly divided times, it's that much easier to generalize about people that you don't actually know. Um, and that's where the danger is, you know, to, to assume a whole population is ignorant or racist without actually, you know, talking to those people. Um, you, you're not going to know what you're talking about. So. Totally. Like on both sides, like have you have you sat down in, uh, you know, rural America and broke bread with people? Have you gone to, you know, the city in New York, Detroit or Chicago and, and broke broken bread with people like, uh, right. yeah, you, you, you learn a lot when you talk to people. Um, I'm, I'm very curious, it's similar to the question before, like how you were received at, you know, at the, the MAGA rally or in Portland, um, by the people that that you were drawing, uh, especially considering some of those people might not want to be photographed or on film, or yeah, yeah, yeah. No, that that's interesting. I definitely felt uh, much more on guard around Antifa types than mm. around MAGA types. Interesting. Um, the MAGA types. Um, let's see. So what did I draw with with Yeah. So I went to this million million MAGA march, and then I went to uh, several drew several Trump rallies for Harper's Magazine. Um. And then some, um, oh God, what do they call themselves? The people that wear Hawaiian shirts. Oh, the, the Proud Boys. No, not Proud, not proud Boys. Um, there's another, Boogaloo Boys. That's it, that's it. Yeah, the Boogaloo yeah. Boys. Um, so all those types of groups, I mean, they were often curious and wanted to see the drawings. 
Um, but I, I, I didn't get any hostility. Antifa, there was definitely more uh, suspicion. Mm. So, for example, I did some drawing in the, I don't know if you went to the occupied city hall when that was all, <laughs> that was a really amazing thing. And um, I always felt I had to be a little surreptitious when I was drawing mm. there. Yeah, they, they had a big meeting actually. And, and usually when I'm drawing, I can't really concentrate on what people are saying. So I sort of, I missed the point of the meeting, but I was there kind of on the side drawing away and I, nobody bothered me while I was drawing. And it turned out they were having a big meeting. This was after the city council had passed the, the resolution to defund the police. And so they're trying to decide, should they keep going with this occupation or not? Um, but then subsequently I went back there. What happened was a lot of people wound up leaving. And the people that stayed in this, so this occupied area was, was this park around City Hall there was probably a, altogether about a couple of square blocks, maybe not even quite that much, that had become filled with tents and people were living there and, um, you know, lots of tables where people were distributing literature and, and uh, food and stuff like this. Um, and so it was very colorful, but, you know, also there are a lot of crazy people there too. Mm. And after the resolution, I think the saner people kind of left and the people that were left behind were by and large a, a lot more volatile and some of them definitely problematic. And th I tried to go back in after that and basically they said, are you with us? Uh, and I said, well, I'm not really here to be with you. I just want to draw and was told immediately I couldn't come in. Mm. So... Um, that was uh, that was a different story. I'm trying to remember in Portland. You know, I think the thing in Portland was that everybody was so busy. You know, it was always every night was so intense with all the drumming and the chanting and the marching and and the running <laughs> and the launching fireworks that nobody had time to ask me what I was doing there. That's an interesting uh, sort of dichotomy. I was I was just thinking like the the guy who had the horns at the Capitol mm. uh, and like the. Just like wolf fur or something that he was wearing. It's like you don't do that unless you want to be seen um, and get a, a reaction. I don't know if it's like praise uh, in the more tangible form of like actual in-person praise or like online forums and things like that. But I do wonder like how many people show up to those things just just to be part of something. Uh, and if that says something larger about like this is, I don't mean to get too philosophical, but like the hollowness of modern life or something like that, just like people need something to belong to. Well, they, that they do. They definitely do. Um, I always like it when an event brings out the theatricality in somebody. Mm. Well, it's good for you, for, for your work. <laughs> it's, it's wonderful for an artist. Um, but, you know, and again, whether it's the left or the right, I mean, people get very creative when it comes to, you know, coming out to demonstrate for their political opinions. Mm. And, you know, I saw amazing costumes in Portland. And as a matter of fact, a lot of fur. I remember one girl that had a bear, kind of a bearskin headdress, and the bear, the bear fur went all the way down her, her back. There was a, something I, I missed a few days ahead of time. A woman just stripped down and got completely naked and began to do yoga in front of the line of cops. Mm. And there were some amazing photographs of it. I would have loved to have drawn that. Um, so I feel like these events bring out all kinds of interesting personal reactions. And to me, there's something really genuine about that. Mm. You know, you can buy costumes online, you know, there's costumes for everything with all this cosplay and everything. Yeah. But during a political event, when somebody invents their own costume to represent something that they feel passionately about, 
I feel like that's the purest expression of, of universal artistry in a way that you can have. Um, so I love it. You know, I, I love that guy with the horns. I mean, I love the fact that he got dressed up like that. Mm. Um, and it's, uh, it's authentic, actually. That's I, I, interesting. I took it as being very authentic. Huh. It's almost like the avatar that they would want to be online, but like, you, yeah, you're sort of like crafting, I guess, like that, that inner feeling of what you are. I don't know. For sure, for yeah. sure. And you could imagine that guy, uh, what do they call him? They have set of a nickname now. <sighs> I don't uh, remember. You know, like Viking guy. Mm. But you could picture him having been in Portland. You know, he, he, he could have been on either side dressed like that as far as I can see. Like to me, the horns and everything, it kind of represented perhaps something very American, right? Mm. Almost going back to settler days, the kind of uh, the independent streak of the person on the frontier, and that frontier mentality is is perhaps something where the kind of the extremes of the left and the right have a great deal in common. Right, exactly, yeah. It's strange too for me because I feel like if you turn on the television, it, it, it feels and looks like just things are unraveling and like society is just completely fractured and like, wow, this... How could these images be? Uh, how could these be happening? And then, like, I'm in I'm in class the other day teaching about Kent State, where like students at a university were, were shot and killed, and that that whole scenario was just completely bungled. And it's like, right. well, maybe it's not that different from that. I don't know. D do you get a sense through your work that like things are worse now than they've been? Or I mean, I do feel that they're worse. I don't know if it's from my work precisely. Um, I agree with you about Kent State. You know, obviously things hit a kind of fever pitch like in 1967, 68, and 69, you know, and the Democratic Convention in Chicago. Um, those riots were maybe as close as we've come to a revolution, you know, the Weathermen, for example. Mm -hmm. um, but it, it does seem to me that back then there was still a broad middle that mm -hmm. listened to Walter Cronkite that trusted that there was a... Um, a press that was reasonably neutral. I think the Vietnam War changed a lot of that mm. because many people in the country who were more on the right felt that the press had lost Vietnam, that their, their reporting had been more pessimistic than it had to have been. Mm. Um, and whether or not that's true, I think that that reasoning continued into the culture wars of the 1980s, um, that those seeds were kind of planted in the, 19, in the, in the late 60s and early 70s. Um, in any case, it, whether or not there's any truth to that, you know, I think most people still believe that the three networks plus uh, PBS were, were, were pretty trustworthy mm. on kind of a, a, a middle political spectrum. Um, and people don't feel that way today. Mm. Um, and, you know, I think that thus the, the interest in, in Musk buying Twitter is that he would, because private entities by and large have become the public square now, mm -hmm. uh, free speech becomes a much more, uh, di more difficult thing to negotiate. Um, and so I think the hope with Musk is that he will restore those older principles of free speech to what is in effect, um, you know, the, the public square. Right. Um, even though Twitter is, it's actually a relatively small percentage of the country, but it's a very influential percentage of the country. 
But the fact that, that most people no longer feel that there is a kind of neutral arbiter mm. in terms of the media, um, you know, I, I feel like that's, that bodes ill for the democracy. Mm. Yeah, I think I agree with that. Um, yeah, and the, the interesting thing about the public square is like, yeah, I, I don't know where I fall on it necessarily, but like in the actual public square, like you would physically be there where you were speaking your words, but now like it, it's easy to, to do things behind like a wall of anonymity in a sense. Yeah, well, not just that, but that you can be deplatformed. I right. mean, that, that to me is the most concerning thing. Um, that if the views are not just controversial, mm. but controversial towards a particular political uh, perception, you can be shut down altogether. And it happens on and, both and, sides. You know, yeah. and, and for certain, yeah. for sure that can happen on both sides. Um, but that, that's, that is, is particularly poisonous to a democracy mm. because if anything will, will kind of give fuel to a conspiracy theory it's when people perceive that they can't express an opinion which is mm. somehow against the kind of dominant, particularly government, line. Mm. Um, so, yeah, I, I don't know. I don't have any answers, but, but it definitely feels like things have, um, have, are boiling over in a way that, to me, feels more dangerous than the 1960s. Mm. That's scary. Um, looking to the future... Do you now like sort of like work on assignment or if one of these events is happening or you're like, okay, I need to go there, uh, paint, you know, record it in the way that I do my art. And then like, if someone's interested, they'll pick it up. Like how? Yeah, both. both. Okay. Um, I mean, it's, it's, I can afford to, you know, fly out to somewhere and, and, you know, spend a few nights in a motel or whatever, um, and it's if if something interesting is happening, then it's great. Mm. You know, I mean, the Portland thing was an example. I, I wasn't, um, I was not uh, on commission. I just I just went on my own dime. Um, and um, Bomb Magazine wound up publishing a really nice portfolio of the work from from Portland, and I wound up showing all that work at my gallery, uh, Postmasters. Um, but other times, I've done a lot of work for Harper's Magazine, which was great. I think I mentioned before that my artistic hero, Winslow Homer. Um, his work uh, for the Civil War was for Harper's Magazine in 1860, or Harper's Weekly, I think it was called. Uh, and uh, so over the years, Harper has sent me to a lot of places, including the uh, the oil spill, the BP oil spill oh, wow. in Louisiana. Um, like I said, I did some, I did a bunch of Trump rallies. Um, the Gitmo project was through them. So um, I love doing that kind of work. So how can... Um how can people either follow your work or if they want to purchase something, how can they find out more about that stuff? Well, I sell the work through my gallery, which is Postmaster's Gallery. Um, they're located in, in uh, Tribeca. Um, unfortunately, I no longer have an Instagram presence. My <laughs> yeah, account yeah. was hacked. And it turns out that a billion-dollar company like Instagram chooses not to hire anybody to have a one-on-one a, a, a -on -one interface with if you get hacked. So I was never able to restore the account. Thank you very much, Instagram. Yeah. Um, and, but they can look, they can look me up online at Google my name, Steve Mumford artist and see a lot of the work. Uh, and like I say, they can acquire it through, uh, Postmasters. Awesome. Um, and I'll, I'll link to that stuff in the player that anyone's listening to this in. Um, Steve, thank you. I feel really fortunate to have had this conversation. Uh, you've led a fascinating life and your work is fascinating. 
Um, so thank you. And also thank you to your wife who, who helped me make the connection after you were, uh, after you were hacked. So thank thanks, you. Tim. I was afraid I wouldn't have anything to say, but oh, no, no, no. I have gabbed for, I don't know how long and virtually not asked you a question about yourself, Tim. So I, I have, <laughs> your questions must have been really inspiring to me. Thanks. Thanks a lot. Cool. Well, cheers. Thank you. All right, Voyagers. That is a wrap on episode 271 of the Voyages of Tim Vetter podcast. Thank you so much, Steve. Thank you for letting me come to your studio and to learn more about your experiences. Voyagers, I hope you enjoyed this. I really enjoyed it. <laughs> this one, I mean, I like them all, but every once in a while, there's one that is just really unique and feels extra special. And uh, this is one of those. So yeah, thank you all of you for listening. As always, please, please, please take care of each other and I will catch you all very soon.